This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. My time is diamonds, too. That as a woman, I deserve equal time choice over how I use my day. Time is not different. Time is time. We only get 24 hours in a day. And I want as much time choice over how I use my day. And that is not going to happen if I'm in charge of not only a work for pay job, but also every single household and domestic task for my family. You are listening to Eve Rodsky on Psychologists Off the Clock. four clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. From coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty and the Big Book of Act We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. We're thrilled to be partnered with Praxis Continuing Education here at Psychologists Off the Clock because we really value our own continuing education. And I know, Jill, you've participated in a number of Praxis events. I have. Praxis is my favorite. I think probably the most memorable was when I participated in an ACT boot camp after I'd already been learning and doing ACT for about 15 years. And I still got so much out of the training. I have a memory of Steve Hayes jumping off of a phone book to demonstrate how small your committed action can be. And sometimes I'll bring up that memory and use it with my clients. And that's probably from 10 years ago. The Praxis also continues to evolve and change over time. It integrates new therapies as they come out. It has trainings in compassion-focused therapy and acceptance and commitment therapy and radically open DBT. If you go to our website at offtheclockpsych.com and visit our sponsorship page, you can get a coupon for $25 off. So check it out. Hey, everybody, it's Jill here, and I'm really excited to announce today's guest. I have Eve Rodsky here with me today, who's the author of a book called Fair Play. And I think what's really special about this episode is I suspect it's going to get a lot of listeners really thinking and talking because that's certainly the impact that this book um, had on me. And so I have Diana here with me today to talk a little bit about her reaction to the episode. And then I loved this interview so much that I invited Eve to come back in a few months. So I'd like to invite you, listeners, if you're as compelled by this information as I was, I'd like to invite you, listeners, to read her book, to learn about Fair Play, and then reach out to me. Let me know how it's going, what kinds of questions you have, and I will share those with Eve when she comes back. And, you know, we can make this a larger conversation. And I want to give my husband some props here because... I've become really aware recently that one of the reasons I've been able to pursue some pretty important goals in my professional life is because my husband, Billy, has really become an equal partner at home and we share the labor. 
And Eve talks about how equality in our society can't occur until we have equality in the home. And so I think it's a really important topic for us to be talking about. And I have Diana here with me. So Diana, tell me, what did this stir up in you as you listened to the episode? Oh, it stirred up a lot, Jill. I loved this episode and listening to it, I was on a run and I had to keep on stopping because I wanted to take notes about what Eve Brodsky was saying. She was so brilliant, but also relatable at the same time. And she had these insights into really what is one of the biggest stressors on many families and households right now, which is how we navigate the unmanageable demands of work while trying to take care of our homes and some of us take care of children or animals while not destroying our relationships or quitting our jobs. And I know that many of us feel like we're chronically not measuring up and we're overwhelmed. So Eve talks about really sort of the main takeaway from, from the interview and mainly because she told us that we it was the main takeaway, <laughs> which was you aren't the problem if this is happening. This The system is. And it made me to think about this piece of work written by Marion Cooper, who's a sociologist at Stanford, and she was also the co-author of the 2020 report on women in the workplace. And they found that not only are mothers doing way more during the pandemic, but they're also two times more likely to fear being judged because of caregiving duties at work. So we're in this really um, impossible conflict where we have the definition of an ideal mother, which is in, incompatible with the definition of an ideal worker. And I, I think that many of us are feeling like we're not measuring up, but it's not our fault. It's, it's the system that's the problem. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, the fact that the numbers are showing, I want to say the last month's report was that over a million women left the workforce in one month because it is just utterly impossible to juggle the demands of a home and children being home and homeschooling if you also have a job. And, you know, the number of men leaving the workforce is far, far, far lower. And that's an equality problem. You know, that's something that if we had an even distribution of responsibilities in the home, those numbers would be very different. Eve really focuses on how the relationship between you and your partner, how we need to work on changing that to help change the system, as you mentioned, Jill. And one of the things that I thought a lot about when we were when you were talking was what if you have a partner that wants to show up and, and practice fair play? And that's the case for me. I have a partner who's like super skillful with the vacuum. <laughs> <laughs> you sent me the book, Fair Play, and I took a, I literally sat down on the on the bench and he was vacuuming while I was reading it. And really, what's going on there? Why do I still feel overwhelmed? And I think that there's after some self-reflection, not only is it the societal expectations for me, it's also some inner barriers that I have, one of which is perfectionism. I think a lot of women experience this where he tries to help, but all I do is criticize when he does help. I talk about what he did wrong as opposed to what he did right. And that ends up punishing the behavior of helping. And as behaviorists, you and I know, Jill, that's not going to get you in the direction you want to be going. And I think we also need to recognize where we have to let go of some control. If Billy is going to load the dishwasher, but I don't like the way he loads the dishwasher, too bad, <laughs> you know, like you that you can't have it both ways. Yeah. Either you're going to have a partner who helps and does it their way, or you're going to have someone like you're saying, who's, you know, frustrated and being punished rather than reinforced. And, you know, it's just not going to work in the long run. 
I also think that something that was really helpful that you've said is how we ask for support. That when we express more of our softer, vulnerable emotions with our partners, they're much more willing to step in and help. And it made me think about 11 years ago when I had my first child and I got to a place where I was really overwhelmed. I was struggling with postpartum depression. And I remember this moment in time where I couldn't make the bed anymore. And I turned to him and I told my partner about what it, what it had been like for me and what it was really like for me in terms of overwhelm. And from that point on, he started making the bed. And I know that when he makes the bed now, he makes it out of a place of truly caring and loving me. Well, I think that's such a cool story. And this vulnerability piece feels so important because if you hadn't done that, I suspect he would have just said, Diana, just let it go. Who cares? It's a bed. Like, just don't make the bed. And it would have been a contentious situation rather than something that it sounds like it actually promoted connection and closeness, which is just amazing. I love that. We always have these opportunities to step through into more closeness and connection. I think right now we need that. We need each other to co-regulate and get through the challenges that we're all facing and it starts within our little yeah. households. So, yeah. so grateful for this episode, Jill. It's fantastic. It's funny. It's our first explicit episode. <laughs> That's sort of exciting for us here at Psychologists Off the Clock. It's our very first episode that we've had to rate as E for explicit because there's a lot of passion in this episode. So you will enjoy some colorful language there. So enjoy this episode with Eve Rodsky. I am so excited to announce that the co-hosts of Psychologists Off the Clock are hosting our first annual Psychologists Off the Clock Wise Mind Summit, How to Adapt and Thrive in Today's Challenging Times. We have an amazing lineup of speakers. We have Dr. Rick Hansen coming to talk about growing the good in your brain. Dr. Rafael Paleo is coming back to answer our questions about how to sleep. We have Julie Lithgott-Hames, who wrote How to Be an Adult, who's coming to talk to us about empowering our kids in challenging times, and A.J. Harbinger from the Art of Charm podcast, who's going to talk to us about conversations that connect, and many, many more, including presentations from all four of the POTC co-hosts. Our summit takes place on Friday, January 29th and Saturday, January 30th. The first 300 registrants will be able to register for free, and after that, tickets will only be $8 just to cover administrative fees. So we hope you will join us. We're really excited. You can check it out on our website at offtheclockpsych.com. I have Eid Rodsky with me today, and if her name sounds familiar, it's probably because her book, Fair Play, is making quite a splash as both a New York Times bestseller and one of Reese Witherspoon's book club books. So I'm incredibly excited to dig into it with her today. Eve received her BA in economics and anthropology from the University of Michigan and her JD from Harvard Law School. After working in foundation management at J.P. Morgan, she founded the Philanthropy Advisory Group to advise high net worth families and charitable foundations on best practices for harmonious operations, governance, and disposition of funds. In her work with hundreds of families over a decade, she realized that her expertise in family mediation, strategy, and organizational management could be applied to a problem closer to home, a system for couples seeking balance, efficiency, and peace in their homes. 
Rodsky was born and raised by a single mom in New York City and now lives in Los Angeles with her husband and their three children. Eve, welcome to Psychologists Off the Clock. Hi, Jill. How are you? I'm good. I'm so happy to have you here. And I have to tell you, Fair Play was recommended to me by a friend. And when I read the jacket, I thought, oh my gosh, I feel seen. So I'm actually going to read it so that our listeners who haven't read the book yet, who I'm sure many will go, oh my gosh, me too. So I'm just going to read this first paragraph. It started with the shit I do list. Tired of being the she-fault parent responsible for all aspects of her busy household, Eve Rodsky counted up all the unpaid and visible work she was doing for her family and then sent that list to her husband asking for things to change. His response was, underwhelming. Rodsky realized that simply identifying the issue of unequal labor on the home front wasn't enough. She needed a solution to this universal problem. Her sanity, identity, career, and marriage depended on it. And so I read that and I thought, oh, I'm so glad I'm not the only one because (laughs) I literally, out of desperation, created a spreadsheet that had the, here are the things you do, here are the things we share, and here are all the things I do. And thought for sure just sharing this information would make my husband say, oh, honey, my gosh, I'm so sorry. I had no idea. We need to fix this uneven distribution of labor in our home. And, you know, of course, we know where this is going. That is absolutely not what happened. And from reading your book, it sounds like you've had many women say the same thing to you, sharing this type of experience. Our sponsor today is Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. I love my Uplift standing desk. It's solid and sturdy and allows me to easily transition from sitting to standing while I work with just the push of a button. The ability to switch from sitting to standing throughout the day has been a complete game changer for me. I feel so much better than when I sit all day and it helps me stay alert when I get tired. In addition to standing desks, Uplift offers ergonomic office seating, storage systems, even walking treadmills for your desk. Everything you need to up your office game. You can get free shipping with no hassles, free 30-day returns and return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Remember, by supporting our sponsors, you are supporting the podcast. Visit upliftdesk.com slash POTC for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk dot com slash POTC to get 5% off your entire order. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better and dating safer. They've changed. So you don't have to download the new Bumble now. One million percent, Jill. What I learned very quickly is that lists alone don't work, but systems do. But let me give you a little bit of that context because how did I get to that that realization? Uh, Well, I think for me, it was a few things. One, as I write about in Fair Play, times of big disruption can be really times of real growth. And uh, one of the worst days of my life was this day that my husband, Seth, sent me a text that said, I'm surprised you didn't get blueberries. And I write about that day because we can all sort of picture that scene. It reminds me a lot of 
the space and time continuum collapsing on all of us right now, actually. <laughs> I had a breast pump and a diaper bag on the passenger seat of my car as I received that text. I was in the car. I had gifts for a newborn baby in the back seat of my car. I had a client contract on my lap because I had opted out of the traditional workforce. And I say that in quotes because language matters. And now I say that women are forced out. But at that time, I was blaming myself. So I had started my own uh, law firm and I had a client contract in my lap. I had a pen. I'm very analog. So I was marking it up by pen and the pen was between my legs. And every time I would stop at a stop sign, the pen would sort of stab me in the vagina. (laughs) And I was racing to get Zach, my older son, who was three at the time at his toddler transition program. And because we, you know, really support working families in America, right? Those programs, those twos, threes programs, they last like, you know, seven minutes. And so that was the, the scene when I get this text from Seth, I'm surprised you didn't get blueberries. And that day, like I said, you can't see the future, right? I didn't know it was going to start a whole new career for me. But what happened to me that day was I pulled over to the side of the road. I'm from New York, but I live in Los Angeles now. So we don't take traffic lightly. So for me to actually pull over when I was running late to pick up Zach was a big deal. And I was really beside myself, Jill. And I think why I was crying that day on the side of the road was a few things. One, I think like many of us, it felt very cliche that my marriage seemed to be ending over being the fulfiller of my husband's smoothie needs, right? Not not like some affair that I was having with an NFL player or some dramatic fight in the Caribbean where my hair was blowing and I'm really tan. So I think that was the first thing that made me so sad. But really what I was thinking that day was, I was blaming myself still by saying, you know, I used to be able to manage employee teams and now I'm in a place where I can't even manage a grocery list. And more importantly, um, I was thinking, shit, this is really not the career marriage combo I thought I was going to have because I had the privilege of two things. One was that I was my mother's partner. So you, in your beautiful intro, you know, you mentioned I'm a product of a single mother Starting at around seven, I was, they call me a parental child, or you do, because you're you're the psychologist, but <laughs> parental children, I guess, from what I've learned from psychologists like you are people who step in to help your parents in a way that may not be psychologically appropriate or good for a child. But around seven, when we would get eviction notices under the door, my mother worked late, I would wait up and remind her she had to pay her rent. I would help with late utility bills. That- would come in because a lot of our mail was scattered. I'd start sorting our mail. And so um, I really vowed from an early age, Jill, that this wouldn't be my life, you know, that I would have a true partner in the home, that I would have a father in the home. I wanted a 16 candles life, you know, and um, on top of that, I'm a Harvard trained mediator. Like you said earlier, Um, I'm literally trained to use my voice in a different way than psychologists are trained, but we have a similar um, disciplines. And that a lot of what we both do is know that the presenting problem is not the real problem. As a mediator, a psychologist, I think we have that in common, right? The presenting problem over blueberries is not the real problem. And I'm trained to know that. And I'm trained to use my voice. But still, still, I was crying by myself on the side of the road over um, being completely and fully overwhelmed from all of the invisible childcare and housework I was doing for my family. Two thirds or more of what it takes to run a home and family falls on women. 
um, in hetero cisgender relationships. And that was a statistic that I was undeniably living, but I had no idea at the time. And so that was a day that I started to become very curious about what was happening to me. And that's, that's ultimately how the shit I do spreadsheet started. (laughs) (laughs) So it started with the blueberries and then turned into the shit I do list. Um, and you know, I love what you say that this idea that you realize the lists don't work, but systems do. And I think, you know, one of the many things fair play does is it really makes this invisible workload visible. And as you say, it's, if it's visible, it's therefore quantifiable. And so I want to talk about exactly what fair play is. But before we do that, I, I want to mention a couple things based on what you just said. That And I think it's like, the why is this important? And there was a quote that stuck out to me. You quoted a woman named Jessica Valenti, who said, it's not motherhood and kids that derail women's careers. It's men who refuse to do their fair share. And then you had gone on to say, you know, how can women lean in without consistent contributions from our partners? And there was also this other research. I mean, you should see the the notes in in my copy of the book, the (laughs) exclamation points, the WTFs. There was research you cited that even when spouses are contributing to the household, that men cut back on the amount they do after kids come. So there's more to do, but that gap between women doing more than their male partners, if we're talking about heterosis relationships, as you mentioned, um, that that gap gets even wider and that the pay gap between mothers and non-mothers is wider than between men and women. And that shocked me. And those were just a couple of the things that stood out in terms of why we need to find a way to address this gap in the household. So I don't know if there's anything more you want to say about kind of the why behind that. Absolutely. Um, Um, I think, well, I think it's really important because um, a lot of the messages we get, right, are that we can fix our own lives. And what I'm here to say is that if there's nothing else you take away from today, but that this is private lives or public issues, right? This is not a you problem. This is a societal problem. That's what I would be hoping you would take away today. And also, Jill, as you said, um, there's all this crap out there about, you know, don't marry your glass ceiling or the man you marry is the most important decision you make for your workplace. But what if you don't know the man you marry? What if the Mm -hmm. man you marry, things were extremely fair before kids came. And then what I didn't realize was that I was married to a different man after kids. Mm-hmm. And so when you see the statistic that men do five to 15 hours a week less after kids, what you realize is that these are systemic issues that you can't control for this by just a quick fix in, in, or a list. And this really requires a lot of consciousness raising and a rethinking and a, and a mindset shift. And that's really what fair play is about. But I want to just, I think it's important to do a little bit more consciousness raising before we get into what the actual mindset shift looks like. Um, and it works. Uh, thousands of couples are playing and it's amazing what men are doing. Uh, this fair play is a love letter to men. I will say that, but it requires real work, real work. The same work you do in a, a therapist's office. It's, it's that type of work. It is work looking at yourself first and then work with your partner. So again, why I love talking to women like you, Jill, because uh, you help people do that important internal work first. So what is the internal work of fair play? Well, it's based on a premise around a core finding that the home is very dangerous. 
And the home is dangerous because it presents really small. And so I really genuinely thought my marriage was ending over blueberries. And I had a man in White Plains, New York, my favorite, one of my favorite interviews. He told me his marriage was ending over a glue stick. (laughs) And it was really fun. We can unpack that all you want. You can sort of picture why, but people really believe that, right? That uh, this, we're fighting over the sponge in the sink. So that's why the home is dangerous. If you can step out and say that, as we said before, right, as a mediator, we like to say the presenting problem is not the real problem, that this is not about glue sticks or blueberries, but this is about a systematic devaluing of women's time. And that was the core finding of fair play. It was this idea that we as a society, we treat and value and guard men's time as, as finite, like diamonds, and we treat and value women's time as infinite, like sand. Um, think of days of our lives, that old soap opera with the hourglass that has sand pouring through it. That's women's time. So that's very esoteric. So what do I mean by that? Well, I break it down in fair play into what I call toxic time messages. So in the workplace, we get those toxic time messages. We're the ones who have to order the the office birthday cake. We're the ones who have to take notes. We're the ones who are paid less. If you're a woman of color, it's even worse, 50 cents in the dollar for every non-Hispanic white man. Um, so we know women's time is not valued in the workplace. And we've known that for a while. If women enter male professions, the salary automatically goes down. If men enter women's professions, like computer programming, the salaries automatically go up. So we're not paid the same for fair work. But what was so insidious and why I decided to write to women, Jill, was that it was women devaluing their own time in the home that was so shocking to me. And so it was from a question I would ask. And I interviewed 500 men and women for this book. It took a long time, but I wanted to really be very confident in my, in my data. So I said, I want to get more data than every psychological or sociological study, even though I'm not, it wasn't peer reviewed, but I felt very confident. And then of course, as you said, I back it up with statistics and a big bibliography, but um, women, what do women say about their own time? Well, I asked a lot of women, why are you the one uh, picking up the, the call from the school when your child's sick? This is pre-COVID. And the number one answer I got was, well, my, my job's more flexible. My husband has the health insurance. He makes more money than me. So let's unpack that for a minute, that time is money argument. Well, that would mean, Jill, that I'm relegated to all the invisible work and childcare of my household because I chose philanthropy and Seth, my husband, chose private equity. Um, even though I'm paid less, I will argue to you that my job is actually more valuable. I'm helping people give away money to society. But that time is money argument is going to be a loser, always. The other two arguments that I think we need to unpack before we actually can get to systems change is women saying to me that they're better multitaskers. If my superpower, Eve, I mean, my husband's just better at focusing on one task at a time. I'm, a, uh, I'm just better at you know getting everything done faster. So that one was mine because I came out of a single mother household. So I was very used to doing it all and being very proud of that armor. And I had to go to a neuroscientist, one of the top neuroscientists in America and ask him, are women better multitaskers? Because I see that in some of these um, newspaper articles, but you know, I don't like uh, secondary sourcing. I like primary research, basic research. I like to go to the studies. So I asked him, this amazing uh, man, white dude, older dude in his lab coat, when we can interview people in person, I said, are women better multitaskers? Is, are we wired differently for care? And the answer is no. But 
what he said off the record was so powerful, Jill. He said to me, imagine Eve, that we men could convince you women that you're better at wiping asses and doing dishes. How great for my tenure, for my golf game, for my leisure time, right? Like, why would I want you to debunk that? What are you writing about? Why are you debunking that women are better multitaskers? That helps me. And he was sort of saying it facetiously, but it was a really, really hard thing for me to hear. Yeah. And finally, the last thing women said to me was that in the time it takes me to tell him or her or they what to do, I should just do it myself. Now, that's just a classic economics failure argument. And so for that one, I went to Dan Ariely. He's a best-selling author and a behavioral economist. And I said, is that a good argument for women in the time it takes me to tell him, her, they what to do? I should do it myself. He said, that's a classic, terrible argument because that devalues all of your future time. That means that you're treating your time in the future of having to wipe those asses and do those dishes as worthless when all those future experiences matter. And this is at the expense of your finite time that you would be doing all that extra unpaid care and housework. So to me, that was that was the toxic time messages that we have to retire if we're going to really reframe how we look at this issue. Well, and I think that one with Dan Ariely especially is descriptive of so many of our behaviors that what we do in the short term provides some kind of relief or benefit, but in the long term, it has a much greater cost. And that, you know, it may take a little more time on the front end to kind of, you know, quote unquote, train your spouse, if you will, but you'll end up saving much more time in the long run if you can get through that over that hump. Exactly. I mean, that is, that's the, that's exactly right. Yeah. And I think that we defer doing that short-term work because it is maybe easier in the moment um, to take it on. But also we have to remember that we are also conditioned since birth to take this on. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of consciousness raising, right. That I had to do for myself. We're doing it all in one hour here, but this was, you know, an eight year process for me to uh, get, get rid of all the conditioning that got me to where I was on that side of the road with that, on that blueberries day. And part of it was really recognizing that, oh my God, you know, I really do guard Seth's time as diamonds and treat my time as sand. I would never, it never occurred to me to ask Seth to take this kids to school. Mm-hmm. It never occurred to me to start my workday with my clients early and have Seth share equally in the childcare and the housework so that I could start my day early. It was always that I was tiptoeing around his schedule, his workouts, his time with his friends. And it was only until I realized that my time is diamonds too, that as a woman, I deserve equal time choice over how I use my day. Time is not different. Time is time. We only get 24 hours in a day. And I want as much time choice over how I use my day. And that is not going to happen if I'm in charge of not only a work for pay job, but also every single household and domestic task for my family, maybe other than say bill paying and lawn and plants for what that's what Seth had back then. Uh, He paid our bills and uh, he watered our plants, but everything else fell on me. So that is not the career marriage combo that many of us expect to get into. And what I'm here to say is I will die on the sword every day, the rest of my life. I will make sure that it's better for women than happen than what happened to me. I love it. Well, and I think, you know, there, there are a handful of other books out there that talk about this issue that needs to change, 
But what's so different about fair play is that it truly is a system, like a step-by-step system for how you can execute a change in your household that if you stick with it can really work. And so, um, and I'll tell you a little bit, my husband and I were doing some homework last night, splitting our cards up. So maybe if we have time, we can talk a little bit about that experience, but before we get there, so our listeners know what we're talking about. Can you tell us like what fair play is? Tell us a little bit about the system. For me, it really came down to just mustard. I think it's easy to understand it through thinking about a condiment or think about your favorite condiment and that got into your refrigerator. And the question I started asking myself, and I'll tell you why, I want to just tell you why I started asking about condiments. There was that inflection point, Jill, right after I wrote this should I do spreadsheet, um, which it took me nine months, by the way. Nine months that basically it was a list of 2000 items of invisible work. Cause if you know how Excel works, there's sub, there's tabs on the bottom and then there's these, there's the cells that you can fill in. And of the 98 tabs, a lot of it came from other women. So it was this beautiful communal exercise of asking women like you, very powerful women. What, um, what do you do that takes more than? two minutes of your time. And the reason why I asked that question was because I'd stumbled across, like you said, many books who talk about the issue. I didn't, I never understood that this was a thing that two thirds or more of what it takes to run a home and family uh, fall on women. And then I started to see it. Oh, this is called emotional labor. Ooh, this is called the second shift. Ooh, this is called the mental load. But my favorite was a 1986 article. And that shows you how much has changed uh, I'm being sarcastic there, uh, since '66. <laughs> but she wrote an article called "Invisible Work" and how work in the home, housework, and childcare is not valued because it's the women's domain. And what I loved about the term "invisible work" was that, as you said earlier, there's a modicum of a solution there, right? You just have to make it visible. The invisible is now literally visible on Zoom. We're all the BBC guy being interrupted by our kids. And so when I did that list it was this really cathartic exercise, but as you said, right, I, I said, I finally sent it off to Seth after nine months of crowdsourcing this beautiful list with things like, um, Eve, you forgot elf on the shelf. Eve, you put uh, sunscreen for two minutes of application, but you forgot the 30 minutes for the chase. So it was this really beautiful, funny, great crowdsourcing exercise. And then I sent it to Seth, 19 million megabyte spreadsheet, no context, just the subject line. Can't wait to discuss. And as you can imagine, right, I I didn't get the response I was hoping for. I got one monkey emoji. I didn't even get the courtesy of the three fucking monkey trio, right? I just got that (laughs) sad monkey that's covering its eyes. But I want to just say something about that because in my household, there was a see no evil, right? It was like, I don't want to see this shit and I don't know what to do with this. That's not a system, right? That's a list. But I will say lists can be harmful, even more harmful than that. And as a psychologist, Um, Some of my friends who are psychologists also talk about this do no harm, right? That sometimes consciousness raising without a solution can be really, can be harmful and, and not be great for your mental health. And so that was what's happening. The spreadsheet was sort of going viral amongst communities. And one day you can't make this stuff up. I get a phone call from a woman who I guess got my number from a friend and said, hi, Eve, you know, I got your spreadsheet uh, from the Jewish Federation of Arizona. And uh, I just want to let you know that I'm leaving my marriage. And so I think I really thought about it that day. I thought to myself, what choices do I have here? Right. I have a choice like that woman to leave my marriage. Sometimes we see that in pop 
culture. Like we see, you know, the beautiful work of Elizabeth Gilbert or Glennon Doyle, right? A lot of the Eat, Pray, Love and Untamed that came after a leaving your life, right? Starting over. But if you don't want to do that, there didn't seem to be a lot of options in pop culture. Like what am I supposed to do next? So my next option was I could resign myself to doing it all, Jill, right? And just become a gray version of myself and be resentful and miserable and continue to lose clients and and power in my relationship. Or the third path I decided finally was I can get my ass in gear and become my own client. And so my day job is that I work for families that look like the HBO show Succession. And you should feel bad for me. It's probably like some of your clients, Joe, maybe, but um, it's, it's a hard work um, to bring families around the table with very complex financial and organizational decisions but I do it and I do it well. And I bring these families to the table with grace and humor and generosity um, to have highly complex conversations. And I figured, wow, what if I just treated our home like those organizations? What if our home was our most important organization? So that day I started to think about mustard and I thought to myself, Ooh, well, if I'm thinking about the home as our most important organization, all I have to do is think about mustard and I'm going to break it down. So I started to think about how does mustard get into your refrigerator? And I was like, wow, there's actually a lot of complex steps. There's the first step, right, Jill? Someone has to know your second son, Johnny, likes French's yellow mustard on his hot dog. Otherwise, he chokes, right? He won't eat his protein. Ooh, and organizational management, I know that word. We call that conception. So I would write that down, conception. And then I said, well, it's not finished there. Then someone has to monitor that mustard for when it's running low and put it on a grocery list with everything else you need for the week um, and get buy-in from everybody else. What do you guys need? You know, what do you want? Do you want the bananas? Are you making banana bread this week? You know, what's going on with your snacks? That in organizational management, project management is what we call planning. There is a planning stage with stakeholder buy-in. So I write down, ooh, planning. And then there's the, I have to get my butt to the store to go purchase the French's yellow mustard. Now it's more complicated, I guess, with gloves and masks and whatever we need. But that is in organizational management parlance and project management, what we call execution. And so then when I started to realize that there were actually phases of how housework is done, I started to go out and interview men and women about how they did their housework. And overwhelmingly, what I found was that in hetero cisgender relationships, men are stepping in at the execution phase. And they bring home spicy Dijon every fucking time, right? And I asked her, French is yellow. And are you not, are you blind? Do you not sit at the table? Have you not been sitting with us and Johnny for seven fucking years? Don't you see he dips his food in yellow mustard every night? And all of a sudden, right, we're, we're, my tone is changing. And we're really not talking about mustard anymore, right? Or blueberries or a glue stick. We're talking about two really important things to a relationship, accountability and trust. And what happens when that trust erodes, whether it's over not bringing the right type of mustard home or whether or not it's about your living will. What happens is that 30% of us divorce over these issues. Mm -hmm. And so when I realized that, oh my God, this is actually a systems failure, that when you keep the conception planning and execution together, like you do in the workplace, when you own the groceries card, when you can move to an ownership mindset, Things could change in the home just like they do in the workplace, just like they do in my day job with my organizations I work with. Then everything started changing for my household. And that's when I started to beta test this idea of an ownership mindset, where when you are holding a task, you're holding it with full conception, planning, and execution, not just the execution. 
It makes so much sense because the execution is the visible part of the labor. And the thing that women tend to struggle with the most, I think, it seems like is the invisible labor, you know, all the different synonyms that you used for that. And the conception and planning is what really makes that invisible labor visible. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. We've had a number of guests on the show that we've been inspired by and that are offering you, our listeners, discounts on their programs. If you go to our website, offtheclockpsych.com, you'll be able to find coupon codes for the programs of Dr. Judson Brewer, Dr. Rick Hansen, and Jen Lumenlen. So go check it out at offtheclockpsych.com and start learning today. So one thing I want to make sure that we clarify for folks is how this is different from keeping score. And when I made my spreadsheet and gave it to my husband, that's essentially what I was accused of is scorekeeping. And he wasn't wrong. And I think when you say lists don't work, but systems do, you know, a list is keeping score. And I think like before something like fair play, that's our only option. Like for someone to say, don't keep score feels a little sexist. Like that's patriarchal right there. It's like, who benefits if you don't keep score? Who's going to win the game? It's, you know, it's the the person who's doing less at home. So that's a very important point. And here's why, because the lack of, of expectations and clear, clearly defined roles is patriarchal. And it does benefit the person who's doing less invisible work in the home. But also what I will tell you is it doesn't work for men either. And I'll tell you why, because I interviewed, as I said, hundreds of men and women for this book, and I'm speaking to the hetero cisgender couples now. And the number one thing men told me in hetero cisgender relationships that they hate about home life is that they can't get anything right. And they feel nagged because they do something wrong. And then they are forced back out to the store to go buy, buy the right type of mustard. The number one thing women told me they hated about home life was that they literally can't shut their mind off, not during the day, not at night. And so that comes out with health outcomes of autoimmune diseases and insomnia and resentment and quote unquote mom brain. So, so how do you alleviate that? Well, the opposite of scorekeeping is an ownership mindset because at work, I'm not scorekeeping with you, Jill, about how many patients you see or how many patients I see. If we're in a practice together, you know, we're, we're splitting the money, we're splitting the admin, but you do you, I do me. And we're, we're all we're doing is we're entering a system together and people are afraid of systems. So I want to break down what a system is. A system, the only thing it is, is explicitly defined expectations. That's it. Knowing your role. And that with that comes fairness and transparency. So what I like to say is fair play is not a 50-50 scorekeeping exercise. 
I don't even care what your fair looks like. It's going to look very different than my fair, but it's the buy-in. Systems are explicitly defined expectations because there's communication and there's buy-in. So what do I mean by that? Let's just give an example. So for me, when we were moving to an ownership mindset, a system, the initial buy-in from Seth was sitting him down instead of just saying, you know, I'm sorry, I threw a 19 million megabyte spreadsheet at you. Um, but I want to talk to you about my time. I feel like my time is slipping away. And because I only get 24 hours in a day, I'm feeling like a real gray version of myself because I feel like we center your time as everything. Uh, we guard your time. We allow you the time to watch sports center and check your extra PowerPoint deck and walk away for the calls while I'm there putting the kids to bed and making dinner and then going to run to them if they need water in the middle of the night, right? My time is interrupted. It's not my own. And that's making me really sad and depressed. And I think when we could go deeper and have those conversations, Seth was more willing to hear me. And then from there, it was saying that, what if we started to think about our home as our most important organization? And let me tell you what some of the uh, labor that's going on behind the scenes if we move to more like an ownership mindset, like you would at work. And Seth really understood the ownership mindset. He works on a DRI formula, which was coined by Apple, the directly responsible individual. He likes to give his team context, but not control uh, the opposite of the home, right? So he got the ownership. And so what I, when he said, okay, what does it mean to do ownership? I said, well, let's just start with extracurricular sports. I really appreciate that you think getting the kids to the little league field is owning extracurricular sports. But what if I told you that I actually survey the kids to see what sports they want to play. I find out what leagues their friends are in. I log them onto some crazy portal that I can never remember the password. So I'm always locked out. I Xerox uh, five copies of their birth certificate that I can never find because it's in some drawer that I don't know where it is. Um, I'm snack mom. Remember back to language. I organize six hours worth of carpools. I'm on 52 group texts and I would love to hand that over to you. And I want our kids to hopefully get to their practices. I know you value this too, but just from that one, that one card, right? Cause that's the metaphor. These, these hundred tasks that are, I call them cards and fair play. Seth taking over that one task out of a hundred got me six hours of my week back. And so that's why I say it doesn't have to be 50, 50, but it can start with fairness and it can start with just understanding that the conception and planning is just as important as the execution. Right. And I think having that equal buy-in, you know, it's in fact, you have four rules before you start playing the game. And one of them is all time is created equal. So I guess we haven't said much about the cards, but fair play involves 100 cards of various different tasks. And you're essentially choosing who's going to take ownership of what, but before even starting that, really recognizing that the time is really what matters. It's not who has you know, you have 50 cards and I have 50 cards, but really respecting this time equally between people. And you have some great scripts in the book for how to have this conversation with your partner. Um, I will admit that I took a little bit of a, a cowardly way out last night when I when I told my husband, Billy, I didn't tell him, I asked my husband, Billy, if he would basically do like a podcast prepping homework assignment with me. So I sort of like, you know, went in, like slid in sideways instead of like really being honest about 
what it was about. So we sat down and and we we worked through the cards. And I honestly, the reason I wanted to do it is I really wanted to have the experience before talking to you because it's different reading the book and really having the experience. And it was much easier than I thought it was going to be. It takes a little bit of time. And I will say he was not like, yeah, let's go. I'm super pumped to do this. He was kind of like, okay, I guess. I mean, he was like a lukewarm at best participant. But, you know, once we got into it, it didn't take quite as much time as I thought that it would. There were conversations we had like, okay, good example, um, thank you notes. I've always been a thank you note writer. My mother would be rolling over in her grave if she (laughs) knew I stopped writing thank you notes. I even said something on social media at one point about thinking about not writing thank you notes. And my aunt yelled at me, quote unquote, on Facebook. And I just looked at him and I was like, do we care about thank you notes? You know, is this something we value? And I'm like, this is one of those things I feel like I should do, but I just don't want to do it. And it was so like cathartic to get rid of the card, to like put it in the pile of we don't care. And then the next one was holiday cards. (laughs) And I, of course, am always the one. And think about the hours of time it takes from the beginning of like, what are we going to do for our card this year? And all the steps to making that happen all the way through to putting them in the mailbox, right? I mean, it's hours and hours of time. And I held that one up and said, do we care about holiday cards? I'm like, I just don't know if I have the bandwidth this year. And he said, I've never cared about holiday cards. (laughs) Jill, I love this so much because you're having the right types of conversations. So that is, it, th- remember, fair play is a practice, right? It's a practice. It's not meant to, it's like exercise. I wish I could exercise once and be fit the rest of my life. I really do. I'm a very sedentary person. I would just rather be reading a book in a corner. But the practice is so beautiful what you're saying. And I will say the, that, that is often a step that people miss. And, and it's, it, that's how you get back into a scorekeeping or list mode. Because whether or not you're using cards, because fair play is a card game, it's a metaphorical card game. There are actual cards that you can buy as well. There's a download online, you can just download them as well. But it is a metaphor, it's an invitation to have conversations. And I think we often miss the invitation. And I think we should talk a little bit about communication and how do you even start to have these types of conversations? Well, The first thing that I would say about it is I was shocked, Jill, by the amount of women who told me that they cannot communicate about domestic life. And, you know, you're a psychologist and same as me in that we're trained to use our voice, right? It it is hard to have these personal conversations. And so, so many women said to me that in their own homes, they use their voice everywhere. They are major CEOs, they're um, in retail. And so they use their voice uh, in sales but that they can't use their voice in their home. So I remember early on in the fair play research, I, one woman said that to me, I don't communicate about domestic life. It's too triggering. And then she tells me 20 minutes later, completely unironically that every time her husband forgets to put the laundry in the dryer, she dumps the wet clothes on his pillow. (laughs) This other woman told me uh, that she hasn't communicated about domestic life. And then I found out she has an Instagram account called the shit. My husband doesn't pick up. Um, during COVID, I reached out to a woman who posted on, uh, a Facebook group called the reasons I hate my husband during COVID. And it was 27,000 members in this group. And, or I, the reason I hate my husband and kids during COVID 27,000 members. And she wrote, if my husband dies during COVID, it won't be because of the disease. 
you know, because of me. So I DM'd her and said, like, I just would love to know, like, how do you normally talk about domestic life? And she's like, well, this is my safe space. I don't. So I said, okay, so you're willing to publicly threaten murder of your partner in a 27,000 member public forum, but you don't talk to your partner about domestic life. So I think the one thing I want to say is we are already communicating. I will go on your Nest Cam tonight. I'll see five ways you already communicated. I don't even need to see your audio on. So once I start, to, people start to understand I was asking for a communication shift and not a start, it became easier to think about how you can approach these conversations. Well, and I love that you say this is really, this is a process. Is that what you said? It's like a process that unfolds over time because, you know, yes, we're communicating in many different ways. And I think what happens for a lot of women is we try to have the really direct conversation and the response is underwhelming as it was with Seth and with my husband, Billy. And, and then we give up like, oh, well, I tried and nothing changed. So I guess I'm just stuck. And then the resentment really builds over time. And I think that's such an important message is that you're not just going to whip these cards out and have this, you know, puppy dogs and rainbows conversation and magically have everything work differently in your household, but it's a start and it's a way to start talking and changing. And I already noticed this morning So, you know, we divvied up our cards and I took on a lot of the stuff that was related to the breakfast, the morning routine, because I'm a morning person and he's a night owl. And normally if he sleeps past seven and I'm up doing everything, I'm resentful and I'm yelling, you know, like, get, it's time to get up. You know, I'm just already starting out mad in the morning. But simply because we collaboratively made a decision, about who was going to do what. And I saw that he had 22 cards in his pile. They just weren't cards related to the morning routine. It was like, I, it was fine. Like I had none of those negative feelings and he had taken on the pet card. And so, you know, feeding the dogs was one less thing I had to do this morning. And it occurred to me like, Oh, Oh, I got to remember, do I need to feed the dogs? And was like, Oh, I don't because Billy's doing the dogs day and he came out when he was up and ready for the day. And he's like, come on dogs. Are you hungry? Do you want to eat? And it was like, now I don't think that that one morning is going to mean that everything now is going to go smoothly. And I do have a couple specific questions for you if we do have time to get to them, but, but I think it's a really good start and it felt really different. And I remember thinking, you know, when I first made my spreadsheet and that conversation didn't quote unquote work And it got to the point, you know, I'm somebody who I'm sure just like you, Eve, like I can juggle a heck of a lot of balls, even when they're on fire. And (laughs) I got to the point where I had one too many balls. They all came crashing down and I was drowning. And the fact that I could come crying and say, I'm desperate, I need your help and have nothing change. It ended up becoming a, we need to call a mediator. I'm done. Like if, if I've had this conversation with you this many times over this period of time and nothing ever changes, like it's hopeless. And I kept thinking as I was reading the book and as we were doing the cards last night, I wish I had had something like this back then. And, you know, we made our way through it and we're good. And I think one of the reasons divvying up the cards was probably even a little bit easier for us than it might be for other people is that we already have a fairly close to 50-50 split, but I still, like I said, I still noticed the difference this morning. And, you know, that conception and planning part has not been a part of what we've done when we've split tasks. So I, I really do think it's going to make a big difference. 
And I'll tell you, I, I, everything you're saying is beautiful because let me tell you what was, was good about what you're saying. One is that you didn't just skip to, to giving up the cards and treating it like a list. Well, you do this, I do that, right? A system requires buy-in. And so all the cards are, are a metaphor for an invitation, an invitation to say that this is what our house looks like this week or just today, but it's an invitation that's less threatening when there's a device like a card game, as opposed to saying we need to talk, right? And so if you need an invitation, it's let's play, let's just see. And what I recommend often is to say that instead of going to who does what in all one, and you're you're more used to that because you and Billy have had some difficult conversations in the past, Jill, but for people who are not used to having these types of conversation, what I recommend is just do step one, which was recognize what's in play in your household. That's it. Live with that live with that consciousness for a while before you decide who's doing what. And what I mean by that is exactly what you were talking about. It's going through the hundred tasks and just saying things like, do we care about values and good deeds for our kids? Like, do we want them to, okay, yeah, we do. So let's just think about, do we do homeless, um, you know, wrapping? Do we do meals on wheels? Okay. But we won't decide that yet, but that, we're just going to keep that in our pile. Okay, next. Um, do we care? Let's look up first aid, safety, and emergency. Yeah, I guess we we should care about that. We should probably have a first aid kit. Um, we live in an earthquake zone. We should probably have some sort of fire extinguisher too. School breaks for non-summer, the kids for winter break. Do we have to plan for them to do something? Well, yeah, we don't want them to be on their screens all day. Um, so we're going to probably have to plan. So let's keep that in our deck. Groceries. Okay, yeah, for sure. We need to eat. So that will stay in our deck. Um, cleaning. Yeah, we have to clean, right? So what you're doing is you're coming up, you're getting collective buy-in because so many men, what I heard was that because they didn't get buy-in, they would say to me, I have no buy-in for these things. I don't want to do the holiday card. So why would I help? My wife does all these unnecessary things. Mm -hmm. So how do you know if what you're doing is necessary or unnecessary to your partner, unless you're willing to play together, invite that person to the table to help them and help you decide collectively as a family, what does your household look like? And that's really the key. If you go straight to who does what, it's going to feel like a list. But that practice um, of coming to that table, and by the way, um, the most successful couples who do the system come back to the table every single day mm-hmm. for 10 minutes a day. Seth and I used to do a weekly check-in where we would just redeal the cards and talk about how things were going. But now it's a daily because our jobs are too dynamic. And by dynamic, I don't mean like amazing. I mean that they're moving all the time. And so we had to say, look, now that we have homeschool on our in homework card is now turned into homeschool card. We really have to check in every single night. And so it feels like exercise. Sometimes we sit there, we're like, oh, we're too tired. We just want to watch Netflix, but we bring like alcohol or cookie dough. We set a timer for 10 minutes and we just say, go. You know, what do we want to talk about this in 10 minutes? And in the 10 minutes, it's not always like, oh, you left the sponge in the sink. No, a lot of times it's just like, we don't really need to talk about tomorrow because, you know, I got morning routine. You got the dog. Everything's good. But let's just check in. How was your day? I haven't seen your face. I've been seeing the back of your head all day because we've been running in different directions. So I think that practice, the fact that fair play is a practice, communication is a practice. Oftentimes we don't look at things like that. 
Yeah. And as a system, it provides a structure. And yet it's a structure that I think is meant to be deployed flexibly. And that's part of what you figure out as you practice. You know, I think there are going to be certain cards that maybe we hold on to forever. So for example, my husband is an IT guy. So the (laughs) IT card is always and forever going to belong to him. And then there are other cards that might switch weekly because I'm sick to death of doing the dishes and others that will change within a day. And so this was a question I wanted to ask you about this flexibility is, so for example, one of the car, I'll give you like two or three different examples where this came up. One of the cards is auto and we both just each take care of our own cars. So I think that's one where you do like the split card, right? Is that what you call it? Like you talk about it with splitting kids. Kids split, exactly. Or auto split. Yeah. A hundred percent where if you have your own car, and the other person has a car, 100%, you just take care of your own. And then we, the way we do bedtime is we switch off every other night. And so, perfection, right? And then I was explaining to Billy, that just means that this one card is a card we trade every day. And that's, that's quote unquote allowed in the system. It's not, you have to take these cards and they're yours forever. It's, this is where we're at today. And then we're going to figure out as we go, like how well is this working? Which ones are going to stay with which person, which ones are going to switch, how frequently are they going to switch? And then one of one of my girlfriend, actually, Susie, hi, Susie, who's the person who told me about this book. Hi, Susie. Thank you, Susie. <laughs> she thought I told her about the book. I was like, I don't think so. So we're not really sure where, where it came from initially, but she had the question, like, at what point do you not need the cards anymore? And maybe you and Seth checking in every night. Like, I imagine you're not physically holding cards and trading them back and forth. Like, does this become something that like gets more natural over time? Do you think? A hundred percent. I mean, I, we haven't looked at or used cards for five years because it's just becomes part of your vernacular. Right. And, and the cool thing about it is your kids, it becomes part of your kids vernacular. And that's what's been so amazing to, I'll give you an example. So Ben, we were sort of looking at my Instagram or something and he saw that my friend had posted a chores list for her kids and it said fold laundry. And he said, oh, that's a terrible idea. You know, she's never going to remember that. There's no context for that request, mom, right? There's no conception and planning. There's no CPE there. She should just be required to do a full load of laundry from start to finish. Oh, that's right? amazing. So I was like, oh my God, Ben, you know, if if you're a man and you're eight and you know that you're, you're the best, right? But it's, it's, it's about, you know, adulting it's, it's executive function. And and my kids understand that completion is what executive function is. It's a, it's a important, the opposite of failure to launch are kids who know how to get to college and make their own dentist and doctor's appointments. So what I said to my older son is turning, just turned 12. I said, you're going to start taking your own medical card and we're going to teach you how to make your own appointments. You have your own Google calendar now and you know when, and I'm going to give you the appointments when they need to be made. You'll put them in your calendar with reminders about when you make your own physical appointment and when you make your own dentist appointment. And if you have a cavity, what the follow-up appointment is going to look like. And so it's been really fun to watch because we've been modeling it for so long. But remember, again, we this is a nightly check-in. So um, I will tell you the days we don't check in about who's doing what or holding what the next day. It's a fucking shit show, right? Because... Um, you got to communicate, right? I mean, yeah. life is really hard in the pandemic. And so we are, we are very intentional about that 10 minutes a night. Uh, we're investing in that more than we, I'd say exercise. We haven't like exercised maybe since the pandemic started, but we've always kept our check-in because 
we see the value in saying, okay, wait, what's happening tomorrow morning? Um, okay. Our kid has to get on the morning assembly on the zoom. Well, okay. Our other child has to be on, you know, has a test and, you know, and so trying to figure out we've done a kid split for, um, the homeschool card. So Seth has been in charge of Ben and I've been in charge of Zach. And so, you know, that that's something that takes, it takes a practice. We'll just say, yeah. yeah. Well, the other part I love about this kid piece and the modeling is, you know, you're not only are you raising adults who are going to be able to adult, they're also going to be wonderful partners because they're from a very young age they're They are in a household environment where equity is just expected. Like that's just the way it is. So whoever ends up with those kids is going to be <laughs> in good shape. They're not, they're not going to need to undo years of this stuff. They won't need to make a spreadsheet basically. Yes. Right? That, well, that's what the thing, I think it's the, the willingness, right? The modeling of care saying to my kids, like Ben runs in the other day and he was freaking out and he's like, there's an emergency. I'm like, Jesus, Ben, you know, you're interrupting me. And he, I'm like, you know, women get interrupted every three minutes and 42 seconds and make sure you're interrupting dad exactly the amount I'm being interrupted. But he ran in because he said there was a sexist emergency. He had been, <laughs> um, I guess, watching Cinderella with Anna, our baby, who's three um, on Disney plus. And there's a part where the men and women mice are starting to sew Cinderella's dress and the women push the men away and say, leave the sewing to the women. And he's like, this is sexist. This is sexist. You know, this is a not sexist play. emergency, a sexist emergency. So I was like, okay, you can always interrupt me for a sexist emergency. <laughs> That's hysterical and amazing. All right. I know we're coming to the end of our time. I do want to ask you one other question, especially because it comes from my husband. So I want to get his question answered, which is, so I took the dishes card this week and he was like, well, the thing I don't really get is like, if I'm in the kitchen and there's dishes and I just feel like putting the dishes in the dishwasher, it feels like a little too rigid or he didn't use these words. I'm paraphrasing, but he's almost resisting his own values of just being helpful and doing stuff around the house by forcing himself not to do it. And what I said is my guess was, I didn't know the answer, but I said, well, my guess is that if you choose to take on something from a card that doesn't belong to you, you're allowed to do that, but you're not allowed to then resent me because you did it. And you're not allowed to delegate your own stuff to me. And I'm not allowed to delegate my stuff to you. Exactly. Because what starts happening, what I realize, and this is, um, again, watching couples play for five years was at first, of course, I said, that's great. Help out with each other. Right. But then what I start to see was people start to resent each other they started to delegate um, to each other. And all of a sudden they were back in their old patterns. Yeah. So, you know, this is a full ownership mindset shift. So sure. You want to help out. You want to go into the laundry room and start folding laundry with your partner. That's fine. You know, sometimes teammates help out other teammates. They run into a meeting with them and they can take notes for somebody, but you don't want that to be the norm. The norm is the ownership mindset. And then of course, if you want to be generous, like for example, hosting, People say, well, how can that be just one person's card? Well, it can be because the conception and planning of hosting should stay with one person because what happens if you both host, this would happen all the time. I'd have people call me and say, oh my God, my husband ordered a $300 pizza. Literally, you know, we had, I had a birthday party. I was hosting it. It was my, uh, my card, but he wanted to be helpful and big daddy showed up. That's an LA pizza place. And they have this, it's called like the big daddy pizza and it's $299. And she's like, but I already had box lunches for 
all the families. And so what am I going to do with $300 worth of pizza? Right. So it's really about saving time and money and efficiency, you know, when you can delegate because so many things like that happen over the years when I watch people play. So it, it does say, look, keep your ownership mindset. If you want to be helpful, great, but don't start once you start going down the slippery slope of starting to expect the help or delegating with, to each other, then you're back where you were, where nobody knows you're setting the table and you're just hangry and cranky. You're right. sort of dying in decision fatigue. This whole point of this, of the explicitly defined expectations is that you don't die in decision fatigue. Like mm-hmm. you said, you sort of know who's in charge. So you're not bitter that your partner is not helping. I'm never bitter now right. when I hold the dishes card for the week, because I love doing those dishes because I know that the next week, well, Seth will have it, you know? And yeah. it's like, I don't want you to touch the dishes. Like I'm good, you know, and you do it next week. Cause I don't want to feel guilty for not helping you. <laughs> so, you know, we touched on this a little at the very beginning, but I think it's worth, you know, just repeating a little bit is the benefit to men who engage in this, that when assuming it's a traditional gender split as it typically is, but is that if I'm less bitter, that benefits our relationship and you. And if you're doing your CPE, then I'm not nagging. If we have our minimum standard of care, which we didn't end up talking about, but that we agree that there's a minimum standard that we're going to do something like my, I was laughing reading about it because when my husband took on drop-offs of the kids to school a while back, I got the report card at the end of the year. And they had been tardy nine times. And I, I, I mean, I almost died, but I was, I had read Tiffany Dufu's drop the ball book at that point. and was like, listen, if I'm going to give him drop-offs, I have to let him do his thing and stay out of it. And you emphasize that in here too. So it reduces the nagging it. Well, I wanted to say something about that because I actually think though, that if it's a value to you that your kids go to school on time and it's stressing them out to be late. What I like to say is that this is not about lowering your standards, right? This is not about raising your standards because sometimes that's me, by the way, I am Billy, Billy. I see you. That's your (laughs) husband's name, right? Um, My kids are fundamentally late. Uh, We, I get tons of parking tickets for parking in the red when they go to school. (laughs) My husband's like 20 minutes early. He's on Marine time because his father was a Marine. So Billy, I see you. I am you. But for my kids and Seth went during one of our check-ins, Seth sat down with me and said, you know, the kids are really stressed out on the days you take them to school and it makes our mornings really shitty. And then I have this sort of cortisol hit where like my heart's now pounding when I have to start my work day. And like, what is it going to take to get you guys out of the house 15 minutes earlier? And when Seth was able to say it like that, as opposed to shit, you know, Eve, you suck and you're always late. Right. I didn't feel attacked. It was during our check-in. Our emotion was low and our cognition was high because I was probably drinking some tequila. And I was able to hear Seth and say, you know what? You're right. You know, I was late growing up and it was really stressful to me. And that's what a minimum standard of care is. It's Mm -hmm. being able to have conversations to say, no, I'm not accepting however you do it. You know, my friend's was husband was commuting her kids and he's a chef. He had a knife in the car seat. Like, no, I don't think you should deserve to have a knife in your car seat. But it's also, we don't want to give feedback in the moment. That was the number one most toxic communication tool as a mediator. I talk about feedback in the moment because people can't hear you, but that's why the check-in is so important because if you can hold, wait for it, bite your tongue and deliver that feedback in a time when emotion is low and cognition is high in a check-in, your partner is so much more likely to hear you. And I know that you could probably say to Billy, um, just like Seth said to me, right, that there may be reasons why you want your kids to get there on time. 
Right. Well, yeah. And I loved that you covered this in the book. It gives you a way to talk about that minimum standard of care and for things where there isn't that, like just because you and I load the dishwasher differently doesn't mean my way is right or your way is wrong. So I'm going to leave you to do your thing. But if we agree as a family that timeliness is important, then we do something different. And if we don't actually think it's that big a deal, you know, like I'm just like Seth and we joke in my my family, my dad, if I tell him I'm going to the airport and my flight's at 4 p.m., he'll say, so you're leaving by 11 a.m., even though it's, you know, 40 minutes away. Because I grew up in that really high pressure, high tension, super anxious, like if you're not early, you're late kind of mentality. That's Seth. That is Seth. Right? So that, so, so part of me was like, oh my God, nine tardies. And I didn't say anything, partly because I was being avoidant because I didn't have MSC or a way to talk <laughs> about it, but also because I was like, well, maybe I'm not right. Like, I want my kids to be respectful of other people's time, of course, but also I don't want them to be complete punctuality freaks who get completely anxious and overwhelmed anytime they're running 30 seconds late. Well, I just um, got chills when you said that because it's such a beautiful, you did exactly what I asked people to do. It's to recognize your own internal value for something and whether or not you can do that work on yourself to see whether it matters to you still or not. Yeah. Because the beauty is that if you said to Billy, what you don't know about me, right? You know that I get like to get to the airport early, but let me just tell you about all the stress that I had growing up, right? And um, it's been conditioned in me since birth that if I'm not early, I'm not late. So I do feel triggered when I see those nine tardies. And <laughs> what would a reasonable person do, right? A reasonable person wouldn't be at the airport at noon for a four o'clock flight, but maybe they would be there an hour early. Those are the minimum standard of care conversations. You know, a reasonable person mm -hmm. maybe can expect one or two tardies, but a reasonable person would probably not expect nine. And so I think we can work towards one or two, right? And that's right. that's how the law does it. That's how the law decides whether or not McDonald's can be sued for the for the hot coffee. And I figured that if it works for a trillion dollar tort system, it can work for the home, right? And so the question of the minimum standard of care is what would a reasonable person do? And if you don't know, then you can, I have some tools on the Fair Play Life website. They're trigger conversations to um, ask these questions because typically most of the minimum standard of care fights are actually over time. Uh, the time it takes to do something. For me, it was over garbage. Seth completely mm. owned, owned garbage. He got that I wanted the liner back in and I needed the bins out before trash day. He was great at that, but he would leave the garbage to overflow. Um, and it would get really close to the top. And Jill, just like you, I was very triggered. My heart would start pounding when I'd see that. And so in one of our check-ins, I finally had the courage to sit down with Seth and say, okay, you know what? We've actually never had a conversation about garbage. And you know, you know, I grew up in a single mom household, but did you know that I didn't have a garbage can growing up? Did you know that my mom left me nights to work? And so I would put my brother, my disabled brother to bed and he would ask for uh, water and I'd go into the kitchen, turn on the light, and there'd be hundreds, hundreds of cockroaches and water bugs that would scatter because of the light. That's what I think about when I see garbage overflowing from the garbage can. And, and then Seth was able to say to me, well, I had a housekeeper growing up. Like, I don't really give a shit about garbage. And so what happens, right, when you're so divergent over something that has to get done every day, right? Well, 30% of people divorce over these issues, as we said, but more importantly, you know, you get stuck. You end up saying, well, I might as well just do it my way. But if you have these reasonable person conversations, Seth said, okay, we know it's reasonable to me. Um, the garbage going out once a day. 
and I'll put it in my work calendar, like as a work appointment and it'll get done before we go to sleep. And that was it, Jill. It was like sort of, it was like Moses sort of parting the Red Sea. It was the first (laughs) time in our relationship where the accountability was there. It wasn't reminding and nagging him to do something. It was happening. And it felt really good. And because I knew it was going out once a day, I wasn't really worried about it. I wasn't sort of stalking him in the kitchen, like his garbage shadow, because I knew that it was going out. Yeah. And those are the conversations we have to have. Well, I am excited to keep moving forward here in our house, and maybe I'll check in with you in the next few weeks and let you know how it's going. We can report back to our listeners, and I encourage listeners to grab this book. It's re- It really is awesome, and I would love to hear from people to see how it's going if they try it out. So, Eve, thank you so much for your time. This was such a great conversation. I really appreciate it. And can I talk it. to Billy? Billy, we love you. Um, you're your wife is radiant and important. And so the more you are in stepping up in the home in such a beautiful way that you're already doing, the more that she gets to keep thriving outside the home. And so I just want to, you know, thank all the billions in the world because it's not how we've been raised. It's not how we've been conditioned. And so that work that we're each individually doing is actually making our collective society a better place. A hundred percent. And I can't wait for all of the women out there to start reclaiming their unicorn space. Yes, yes. That is uh, what you do every day. Thank you, Jill, for sharing yourself with the world. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, and you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd like to thank our strategic consultant, Michael Harold, and our interns, Katie Rothfelder and Melissa Miller. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources page of our webpage, offtheclockpsych.com. 